listeners, my name is Nat Wutayatanasit. And my name is Michael Waits. Welcome to Asian Fintech Podcast, a podcast that makes fintech inclusive, accessible, and understandable for everyone. Our guest today is Guillaume Lassonde, the co-founder and CEO of Atado, a leading custody as a service provider for exchanges, funds, brokerages, and all types of digital asset businesses based in Thailand and Singapore. Today, we'll be covering killer applications for blockchain technology and also custody solution and landscape. Hi, Guillaume. How are you? Hi, Nat. I'm doing very well. And uh, thanks to you and Michael for having me. And uh, thanks to everyone tuning in on the podcast. I hope today um, we're going to be able to share some interesting things and that you're going to learn a bit more about digital asset custody and also uh, the vision we have at Atato for blockchains and the broader context of what we call secure computing. So yeah, I'm excited to, to join and uh, looking forward to this discussion. We met last year when you were helping the Bank of Thailand with a few projects, including central bank digital currency. So you have a lot of accolades and achievement behind your belt and a tattoo as well. Very happy to be digging into the space today with you. So can you tell us more about yourself, sort of your career and how you found sure. Atado in general? Thanks, and uh, yeah, thanks for the congrats to the team also. And uh, yeah, so for myself, um, basically, I'm, I would describe myself as an engineer. First and foremost, I, I love to solve problems. I love to build things. So that's that's really my background. I studied uh, network security. Basically, I started to, to work in network security. I was very lucky. I joined a company that grew quite a lot from the moment I joined to the moment I left about 10 years after. And when I left, I was the chief information officer with a team of 20 people doing application development, infrastructure, security, everything to run an IT department of corporation. And then I quit this in 2017 to start Atato. And so Atato, like you mentioned, is one of the leading Southeast Asian players on digital asset technology. As you mentioned, we've worked with the Bank of Thailand together with our partner Consensus and also SCG and DV. We've done quite a few world first. Very happy to report that. So, for example, we were the first to use an Ethereum mainnet for food traceability back in 2018. We've worked for different startups, for traditional financial institutions, for crypto businesses. So, over the years, we've kind of built blockchain platforms for financial institutions. That's our area of expertise, building this in a regulated way in Southeast Asia. And I'm very excited to report that then we're launching our product after completing our seed funding round earlier this year in May. We're building this as part of a bigger portfolio of what we call Secure Computer Operating System, which I'm going to, to share more on today. Secure Computer System? Am I, am I getting it right? Right. Secure Computer Operating System. Yeah, that's Secure right. Computer Operating System. So let's take a step back and maybe we can talk a little bit about the broader view of the internet and the systems that we're using today for online right. activities and all so that our, our listeners can have a bit of background. So what's the lay of the land here and what's the problem that we're facing today? Basically, it's a problem that we learn to deal with. So I'm going to first introduce it, giving some examples and then share a bit more on you know, why we think it's a problem. A month ago, I have a friend who called me. My friend is running a factory. He designed some part, one of his engineers designed a part using a 3D design software. They wanted to send this part to a supplier to outsource the manufacturer. And then my friend called me and said, hey, I'm going to send this drawing to a supplier. I worry my supplier might copy it. I use it for something other than producing the part for me. He called me and said, hey, you're a tech guy. Uh, What should I do? And I told him, well, in my head, you know, technically there are solutions, but usually they take months to implement, they require specific expertise. And so I told him, well, I'm sorry, there's no solution for you. Just going to take it on trust that your supplier is not going to use your drawing for something else. And that's usually um, where you need to sign agreement, right? A non-disclosure agreement. That's yeah, usually exactly. what the industry is doing right now to prevent uh, secrets exactly. from being used. The fallback is legal because technologically we are unable to provide the sort of guarantees that we need. And I have another example, like two weeks ago, my sister called me and said, hey, I want to transfer money outside of Europe. Never done it before. She's in France. And she couldn't figure out how to do a swift transfer on her bank website. Turns out you cannot do a bank transfer on this, a swift transfer on the website of that particular bank. So she had and to, you have to walk to the branch. 
Yeah. And she had to figure out, you know, the right person who knows this stuff and who knows the process. And, you know, all our lives are dependent on computer systems today. Like a couple of weeks ago, there was a news of some guy at Amazon. The poor fellow was fired by SMS because the software decided he was not needed anymore. And I don't need to remind you that your bank assets, your credit history, your debt, all of that lives in a computer today. Our work, our communications, our entertainment, our media, computers. The problem, as we see it as a tattoo, is that computers, they were designed in the 70s. They were designed by brilliant engineers who made incredible breakthrough, but 50 years ago. And they were designed for one goal. The goal is to process any instruction on any data as fast as possible. And this is fine when you talk about a PC, like an IBM PC sitting on a desk with tapes inside the drawers. That's fine you know, to have this goal. But today, we have billions of computers around the world that constantly exchange information, that constantly exchange instructions. And the lack of inherent security as part of computing, we think, is a major issue. And this is why you know, my friend cannot have guarantees that the 3D drawing will not be used for other purposes. And this is why you know, my sister can just go and transfer a token that represents her money. And so we've learned to deal with those limitations. You know, when we hear about ransomware in the news, data leak, computer systems shutting down, we don't even pay attention. You know, we, it's normal. Yeah, Facebook leaked the data of 800 million people. That's fine. Equifax leaks 200 million addresses and security numbers. That's fine. And it's insane. You know, we just have come to accept those limitations as part of our lives. And I think we shouldn't. And I think now that we have ways to build secure applications, I think we have an opportunity then to rethink the way we want computing to be done and to add security properties, which are demonstrated today by things like DeFi extremely well. We have an opportunity to yeah, rethink the way we want computing to be done. That's what we call secure computing. The idea that there are some security properties that can now be built into computers. Yeah, that's kind of the problem that we are trying to solve uh, that at all, which I guess is a big one. So it's going to take us some time. <laughs> That's very interesting because a few months ago, I think last year, my crypto hardware wallet e-commerce website got hacked. The emails and personal data of the customers who bought that wallet from that particular company got exposed in the darknet. And after that, I've been right. getting a lot of spam emails and I cannot do anything about it. My and... company name uh, starts with a T, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So is that the type of impact that you're talking about when there's no security properties with today's internet system? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a great example. Why did they have this data? Well, they needed to be able to email you. Right? They needed to be able to keep in touch with you, track your order. And the only way that we knew how to do this was to say, we're going to have a database and we're going to put all the data of everyone inside it. And we're going to pray that the data remains secure. And sometimes it doesn't. Why? Because the data that's in the database can just be taken and copied somewhere else. You know, we just kind of learn to live with this fact that information is hugely valuable, files are hugely valuable, but we somehow accept that they can be copied at any time for anyone. Because that's just the way that we knew how to do computing. I think there are recent breakthroughs in encryption, in blockchain, which when combined together allow us to think about applications and how we process information differently. And then going back to wallet, of course, you know, this is an area that is dear to us because we are building a custody solution, which, you know, aims also at improving the security of your digital assets. For example, to improve the security of digital assets, there are recent breakthroughs in encryption called MPC, where you can have basically social recovery of a wallet, of a custody service enabled by different signers that have different roles. The point that I'm trying to make overall is that Although everything was designed 50 years ago, scientists and researchers, they've not been sitting around and they've produced a lot of amazing tools and techniques and software and products that we can use today to fix those security issues. How can we now solve this problem of security properties? Is it through encryption methods and blockchain technology? And how, how would it work and fit into what we're using today? That's a million dollar question, right? <laughs> I think, you know, we have to go back to the, the first principle. You know, what are the properties that we expect from a computer that we call secure? 
luckily, you know, security is not something new. There are organizations that have been managing information securely for dozens of years. Uh, we call them intelligence agencies. And they have established frameworks you know, and they have established certain properties that you want of a system to manage information. And so there are three, maybe six that are very commonly used where, for example, you say, I want confidentiality. I want to be able to control who has access to certain information. That's not built into computers today. A computer processes whatever information comes to him and outputs whatever the output of the calculation is. Uh, so maybe we can build that into computers now. You have other properties like availability, integrity, authenticity, possession, utility. So, you know, we have to come back to those principles. What are the properties that we want? What are the tools that enable them to get, make those guarantees to the users? And then how do we put computation on top of this? How do we enable computation on top of this secure information system? For me, the kind of key technological elements First are blockchains. Blockchain gives us availability guarantees. You have a guarantee on availability of data, the availability of information that's on the chain by virtue of decentralization. They give us guarantees on integrity. You have a guarantee that information cannot be modified unless someone is authorized to do so. They give us guarantees on possession. You know who owns certain data. And then when you tie this with identity system, you can have guarantees on authenticity as well. You know you can claim that you are the author of something, you can verify, claim, and you can attribute certain information. And then the key and the most tricky thing is how do I put confidentiality on top of all of this? And this is where, in my opinion, the key area to look at is zero-knowledge proof and how they enable the computation, private computation, basically. You can compute private outputs on private inputs. So, for example, this might seem a bit abstract, right? So... Let's take a more precise example. Let's say Google Photos. You know, I use Google Photo every day. What I love about Google Photo is they can recognize faces of people. They can read the metadata of my picture, see where it was taken. They make some nice albums. I can search the photo of someone. It's awesome. Now the problem is today, Google needs to have my photos to do this. If Google doesn't have my photos, they can't detect faces. If they don't have my photos, they can't make nice albums of a specific trick. Mm-hmm. Now, if you imagine that they can do private computation, it means that I can encrypt my photo, send this to Google. Google somehow would still be able to detect faces on this and then still be able to give me another encrypted result back saying, this is Mr. X. And it's not coming tomorrow, but there are companies that are operating in that space already that have made huge advances. For example, Zama AI is working towards this, this kind of machine learning private machine learning. This allows us to build a very strong confidentiality layer on top of those virtual computers that we call blockchain. And so I think that when we combine the two, we have a basic secure computer with all the properties that are interesting to us. And then the big challenge that comes next is scaling. How do we enable this concept to scale? And one of the things that was so successful that make computing so successful is that the capacity grew with the demand. If you want to become a user of a computer, you're going to buy a CPU, you're going to suddenly increase the capacity of computing that exists. And I think that's an issue of blockchain today that the capacity of the network doesn't grow with the demand because when you're creating a wallet, you're not adding capacity to the network. And so we're going to have to think of a way to enable the capacity of those secure computers to scale along with the demand for it. And so there are still unsolved problems, but I think that once we solve them, we'll really make a breakthrough in the type of application that we can develop. I think DeFi is a, is a very good example, kind of a proof of concept of what can be done with secure computers today. Just to draw an analogy with today's internet, the availability, the integrity of the transaction, the verification is not currently possible with the technologies today, right? And that's why we need blockchain technology to to add these security properties on top. From the user perspective, how would that relate to them? How would they get from the internet today to blockchain technologies tomorrow? I think it's going to be a spectrum of security levels. So for example, if I'm watching a movie, I don't really need to use a secure computer for that. If the movie is slightly altered, Maybe that's fine. 
on the other hand, when I'm making a bank transfer, yeah, I, then I want all those security guarantees made available to me. What made the internet so successful is the layer model. That you have core network functions that exist on the internet that are available to every application. And then you have more advanced functions that are dedicated to certain applications only. Things like encryption when you make a bank payment, for example. In the early days of the internet, not a lot of applications were using this. And so we built these kind of layers. And I think if we want secure computers to be successful, we need to also build this kind of layer model where there are base components that can be used by all applications. And then for specific applications, maybe they're going to use additional security layers if you want. So does that mean that the killer use case for blockchain technology is not going to be everything that we're seeing on the internet today, but will be certain use cases only that require high value or require high integrity? I think we're going to see this on the short term. Those niche use cases that have higher security requirements. But when you really think about it, in 20 or 50 years, if I have secure computers available to me and not secure computers available to me, like why, why would I use a not secure computer? I'll give you a simple example, but like to, to prepare for this call, you open your laptop, right? When you open your laptop, were you a little bit anxious that maybe the laptop was broken? <laughs> Those things happen, right? And you, you never know when it's going to happen. And one day you open your laptop and suddenly it stops to work. Yeah, yeah that'd be a nightmare. <laughs> and so, and so, okay, it's you know, it's not very important. It's a call we're having. I'm, I'm glad to talk to you, but you know, it's not like we're transferring money or something, right? So, but still, we would like to have those security guarantees if we could. I think in 20, 30, 50 years, we're going to expect everything to be secure. And I agree with you that on the short term, it's going to be limited to certain use cases, things like DeFi, maybe secure email, maybe secure communication, maybe secure social media. And we're going to see those niche progress as the capacity of the network increases. But on the long term, I think it's likely that you know we will all be running custom silicon, custom chips that give us the property that we want. And, and it's likely that I think the traditional Intel ARM design that we've come to, to use every day you know, might not be relevant anymore in 50 years. But it's going to take massive change. You know, it's not not something that's going to happen overnight, so it's going to be a gradual process to, to get to this point. What this means for user, practically, is that, yeah, if I'm running a factory and I want to send a drawing to my supplier, I have a guarantee that only he can use it. You know, if I want to transfer my assets that I have today with a bank, I have guarantees that I can do that. And so I think it's going to be very impactful for everyone on their everyday life, because suddenly you have guarantees that things belong to you, that they are available and seen by you only and that they just work. We still have bugs and <laughs> we still have outages, but if the base layer is more reliable, it's going to improve everyone's life for sure. Encryption is the underlying technology that you're talking about in order to send messages securely on the internet. Only the sender who has the private key would be able to view that message, whereas other people who don't have the private key will not be able to. So the crux of it is the ability to encrypt message and be able to transa transact that. So with today's internet, what isn't possible compared to blockchain technologies? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good point. And I guess, you know, there are two things that are really core. The first one is that on its own, the computer or Google data center cannot be trusted in the sense that, you know, some guy in a data center can go and do some things. Someone can hack into it. Because of this, we build huge layers, security layers. So we have things like access control. We have things like audits. We have things like antivirus, penetration testing. We have to build all those layers because the core machine can't be trusted. So what this means for you is that you tend to go with the larger providers because you know that they can make those efforts. You know that they can you know, build all those security layers. If the device is inherently secure, I think people get a fair shot because you don't need to have those millions of dollars invested to build security layers. So I think we're going to see more services being created. And I think the second key property, to go back to your point on encryption, is, is encryption, yes, and the concept of public-private key encryption, especially, which, by the way, didn't exist when computers were designed. You know, So it's not like it was forgotten in the design. It's just that it came after the design of CPUs, really. Along with it, then, is the notion of private computation. So 
using zero knowledge proof, you can calculate something, run some computation without revealing the input or the output. So it's a bit abstract. What this means practically is look at Monero. For example, Monero is a you know private cryptocurrency, right? What Monero is doing is you can transfer a coin to someone. Nobody will know that you did a transfer or to who or for how much. But the system can prove you that, yeah, the transfer executed according to the rules of the network and that the computation was done according to whatever is written. Because now we can generalize this to other types of computation and, you know, anything, uh, lending, borrowing on DeFi, whatever you want, really, we can build general private computation software. And again, you know, this is quite new one. This is like the research is from the 90s. It's only until very recently that computers have become powerful enough to run the very heavy mathematics that enable all of this. You know, I'm not saying that we forgot things 50 or 40 years ago. It's just that they didn't exist or they were not feasible at that time. But now that they start to be, my point then is, you know, then let's get on board and use it and, and rethink a bit how we how we use our computers every day. It's the cloud computing infrastructure or the data centers that's hosted and operated by the big tech companies like Google, Microsoft, Amazon, everything that goes through them is not really secure. Obviously, they are doing an amazing job at it, but but it comes down to having huge investments in people, processes, audit, policies, tools. Some do it well. Sometimes leaks happen. Even Facebook, like Facebook, 800 million people was leaked and, you know, barely made the news. That's the kind of thing that shocked me, you know, and that's, on the other hand, you know, we have to be humble. I think that what's going on in blockchain and secure computing in general today is very, very early stages. That's right. Can we just back up a little bit to solve this problem, right? If everything is going to end up being on a secure computer, which I think you're probably right, it's going to have to be because why not take advantage of it? Is there a social impact to this or a governmental impact to this if everybody's running on their own private chain and then controls all their own information? And is there a self-sovereign impact as well? We are engineers at that, that also. I'm going to you know, speak on myself personally, Guillaume. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, I think what is extremely interesting to me coming out of DeFi is maybe less so the financial application. I mean, constant product is amazing and AMNs are amazing and they are real innovation. But right. I think what's really interesting is the decentralized governance. Yeah. And the idea that... Um, the DAOs? Yeah, exactly. Now I can create my currency, sell it to raise capital. Right. And then I don't need shares and I don't need directors and I don't need votes anymore. Suddenly, creating a company is, is one click. So it's like zero dollars and zero seconds. And I think that the, the impact this will have on society, I think they are not yet fully understood. You know, when we look at the history, and here I'm just talking personally, I think that we've seen revolution that automated the production of goods, then automated the production of services. Yep. And I think we're seeing a revolution that automates the automation. Right now, you can create and fund a company in a few clicks automatically. It's not called a company, and it doesn't have all the you know, legal attributes yet, although in some jurisdictions it's coming, right? Like Wyoming. It's going to take a lot of work from the government. And, you know, that's why I think it's the generational thing. It's going to be maybe 20, 50 years until it's widely adopted because it's not just regulators that need to wrap their head around it, but it's everyone really. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I've always tried to draw analogy between the traditional cooperative In the traditional sense, there's banks that are managed by a small group of stakeholders or management team. And then there are cooperatives which are built for the members and operate for the members' profit, not the shareholders. So in a way, this decentralized autonomous organization and crypto enables the whole operation of an operative to be done on a scalable way and online, which is amazing because it gives back the power of governance and also the profit of any kind of cooperation back to the people who are the member and the users of that particular companies. Absolutely agree. And I think there's two more points that I would like to make on the society side. So there's the one that you say, you know, giving back the power to like, if you use something, you own it, which is kind of not the way businesses operate typically. And then there's the idea that if you look at the auction of a company, you know, you have the CEO on top and then you have mm-hmm. 
people. It's like a pyramid, right? And then at the top, you have few persons making high impact decisions. And then right. at the bottom, you have, you know, lots of people making low impact decisions. We, we flip it now, you know, and at the top, you have thousands of people making very high impact decisions by voting. And at the bottom, you have one smart contract that automates the operation of it all. And, and I think that the, the changes that this will mean for everyday work, I think they're not yet fully understood, but I think it's going to be exciting. To go back to the point of, you know, regulators and government and laws, I think NFT is super interesting for me. And here I'm just going to quote an article from Vitaly on the idea of social acceptance, where he's saying, it's amazing that we have not socially accepted that ownership of a token is the same as owning the thing. And it's a social thing. You know, it's not, there's no contract. There's no, there's no legal structure. There's just the fact that just like if I have a land title signed by some authority saying I own a piece of land, we accept socially that, yeah, I'm the owner and I can make a claim to it. And right now we're seeing this with NFT where if you own a token, an NFT, people accept that you own the equivalent real thing. And you see like a tweet being signed by Elon is worth more than the same tweet signed by someone else because we accept that, yeah, it's Elon, that's his tweet, the, the real NFT does the real thing. You know, to me, this is encouraging going back to regulations because if society's acceptance of those technologies goes fast enough, then it's going to at least push regulators and maybe in some areas, regulations won't be needed even. Guillaume, do you think historically that those types of sort of step stage developments have always been the same. I mean, if you go back to barter, you know, I've got a cow, you've got a sheep, we decide to trade them. Then later I say to you, you know, you've got a sheep, but in a few months I'll have some corn. I'll write you a, you know, a note that says, I'll give you corn in three months if you just give me that sheep today. And it wasn't really, a lot of people didn't trust it. But then over time, it got regulated. That turned into money and cash and all these other things. Are you seeing the same types of progressions, or do you think so? I do, as it relates to NFTs or any types of these technologies. Is that fair? Probably the, the best read I've had on this is called Money, the First 5,000 Years. Yep. And uh, I'm sorry, I forgot the name of the, the author right now. It escapes me, but they outline the history of money, right, starting with Barter, and they kind of debunked the myth that barter was like a cow for a sheep. So it's more like you said, a cow for future corn or a cow for something else. And so they claim that then, you know, money has always been part of trade. And that the question really is just what is backing money? Exactly. And, and so is it backed by gold? Is it backed by a government? And the argument of the book, to kind of keep it very short, is that in times of peace, friendship, friendly relationship between the participants of the trade, you can have money that's based on the government because that's fine. You know, you, you have trust that the government will remain efficient uh, on both sides of the trade. And in times where there is not peace, historically, we've seen asset-backed money kind of dominate the trade because you don't really trust the enforcement of a legal agreement, right? right. So going back to blockchain and what this means, I think now we have guarantees, technical guarantees, mathematical guarantees of the enforceability of agreements. The agreements of trade that we make and the money that we create, you know, doesn't rely on governments anymore. So I think this is a new tool also then for us to trade on the very long term because yeah. you don't need to be backed by an asset because you know that what's written in the contract is going to continue to operate even if there's a collapse of a government, for example. Maybe that's why some organization or countries, sorry, that are less uh, fortunate are turning to it these days, right? Yeah, for sure. Another million dollar question. I think use cases that fit secure right. properties for blockchain technologies are, you know, many things, a DeFi being one of them. But if you could put sort of a timing onto the different use cases, and the readiness of the technology today, what are the main use cases that we should be on the lookout for that the technology today can offer? Yeah, so it's, it's a very good question for sure. And uh, I guess I would answer in three parts. So first, you know, we have to see where we are today and then maybe what are the next two lowest hanging fruits if we want, right? So where are we today first? 
if you look at Ethereum, Ethereum, largest blockchain, most used, most successful, if you look at it from a computer point of view, if you try to analyze, okay, what's the performance of Ethereum as a computer, you know, something running software, you can kind of model it differently, but roughly speaking, it's a 10 kilohertz computer, kilo with a K. Huh? So, you know, our laptops are like gigahertz type machine. Is that what, 10x or 100x? Million. Million is millions of axes. I'm very bad with like metrics and units conversion. Oh, okay. <laughs> You have to imagine that your laptop is hundreds of thousands of times more powerful in terms of raw computing power right. than the whole Ethereum network. It's a calculator. It's a very nice calculator, but you know you have to think, what can I run on a calculator? So I can do lending and borrowing and staking, and yeah, that's fine. But you know it's going to be a bit difficult to do more advanced things. And also, if you want to store data on the Ethereum network itself, which I would strongly recommend not to. Not to do that, yeah. Just to understand. Roughly speaking, it's $50 per kilobyte. Kilobyte. It's ridiculously expensive, yeah. It's not really designed for it, just like you you don't want to store data on a CPU cache. So, you know, but just to give a bit of perspective into where we are today. And how much does it cost if we were to store data on you know, Google Cloud for a kilobyte. It's free. Uh, it's a rounding error. So, yeah, it's free. Uh, yeah, 50 gigabytes might cost, I don't know, like $5 a month, roughly speaking. That's the kind of range we are talking. So it would cost millions of dollars on Ethereum. You're not supposed to use Ethereum to store data, just like you're not supposed to use mm-hmm. CPU to store data. But, you know, it's just to put those kind of where we are in, in perspective. We are, you know, DeFi today, it's like, I don't know if you've seen pictures of the guys at IBM that were building the computers at NASA in the 60s. I have you know, not seen that picture. Huge room. So imagine a huge room with like tech computers and engineers wearing short sleeve white shirts, you know, and they all have like pocket protectors and ties. And, and there's dozens of them. And they are building like NASA computers, right? IRS computers of the early days. Yeah, so there's like very expensive and complex systems and experts and engineers who are the only one who understand how they work. To me, when we look at DeFi startup today, this is kind of where we are. You know, uh, to build a DeFi program today takes dozens of highly skilled engineers, very specific knowledge. And it's just that the flip-flops and the shelves have replaced the tie and the pocket protector, but basically it's the same thing that's going on. So, you know, we're coming from very, very far. For your question on what are the next use cases, we have to you know, take it very slow. I think we are very, very low in, in the adoption and it's going to take a number of years. So to me, what's coming soon, I think, is privacy. I think soon we will be able to have computers with similar capacities with privacy built in. So for example, uh, what the team at Aztec has been doing or the team at Starkware, and we start to see generalized secure computation programming languages, like, for example, Aztec came up with Noir, which is amazing. So I think building privacy on top of blockchains, we're going to start to see it. So you could use it for private DeFi. You could use it also maybe to just secure files, you know, like what Michael was sharing on uh, uh, securing 3D drawings with uh, Trezum, is it? If I Arxum. Yeah. Or you could use it maybe to, I don't know, secure media, secure news, secure emails. For example, like if I get an email and I forward it, I can alter the content of the email. Why? Why do we still accept this in 2021? So, you know, I'm sure we're going to see those types of applications coming very soon, having privacy on top of the limited capacity of those secure computers. Then the next thing to crack is scaling. This stuff this is the tough one. Because like we need a Moore's law of blockchain. You know, we had the Moore's law saying computation power uh, what doubles every eighteen months yep. because the density of transistor keeps increasing. We need this law for blockchain. Uh, we need someone to figure out what's the limiting factor and and really wrap our end around our heads around the way to scale it. So. For Intel, it was simple. It's, I'm going to put more transistors. And once we figured out this, this was the thing to do, scaling went amazingly well. I think that's kind of the next goal for me in terms of adoption is once we figure out scaling, then we can really start doing more generalized computing. And it's going to depend on the capacity. You know, We're not going to go from kilohertz to gigahertz overnight. 
yeah, we'll have to take it uh, over uh, probably 20 or 30 years until we have like blockchain capable phones uh, in our pocket or, or glasses or whatever we'll be using at that time. <laughs> <laughs> Holograms. Instagram on a blockchain. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, on news, like the fact that you can attribute news on the blockchain. I, I think there is a recent startup in Thailand that's doing a social media on blockchain. I forgot their name. Maybe we can put it in the comments. Or, but yeah, uh, I think those kind of, you know, low capacity applications where you want to secure computers like media, file sharing, confidential emails, maybe it's coming. Like we can argue that PGP lets us do secure email for very long time, but the reality is that nobody uses it. So I, I guess the tough thing also will be getting out of the current user base, like the current user base of DeFi is tech people and you know financial people who love those things. That's the part that we're interested in at Atato. It's how do we build the user interface? How do we let everyone access with a network? And this might seem weird because we are a custodian, right? So how does it, what does it have to do with user interface? If you think about a traditional computer, you type in commands on the prompt, or maybe you click buttons. This is how you interact with a machine, right? This is how you mm -hmm. feed machine data. This is how you get something back. How you interact with a secure computer is by making transactions. You make transactions, you call programs, and this is how you send and retrieve information from those secure computers. So custody is an interface that has very few buttons. It has a button to create a wallet, to make a transaction, to receive money. But you know that's kind of the part of the problem that we want to, to solve. So right now, our focus is on having the best experiences for businesses to securely use digital assets with those but three buttons that I mentioned. Then, of course, long-term, our goal is to add more and more features to this uh, user interface of secure computers and, of course, to look at then B2C applications of our underlying technology. What do we think the implication is for money laundering? In other words, if I can create a private chain that's highly secure on a secure, secure computer operating system and I create digital assets, as you suggest, what control can, I would just say, other entities, because I'm confused as to whether there will be governments the way we know them today in 100 years. I say that seriously, not sarcastically. And if that's the case, how do you stop money laundering? And, and to be fair, why do we even care? Yeah, I think that's the key thing. Like, Why do we even care? And the argument I would make is that, why do we need money laundering? Like, If I'm a criminal, why do I need to launder money? That's my so, point. I, yeah, I need to launder money because I have some illegal activities going on. Yep, and I don't want you to know about it. Or another vehicle, right? Right. So then the question is, how are those illegal activities going to continue to exist? If we are living in a world where instead of cash, we have token transfers for any kind of payment, I think that it's going to be harder for those illegal operators to continue to operate, in my opinion. I think on the long term, I think this might kill the problem at the at the root, you know, because if we don't have ways to perform illegal activities, because you know, I, I love the technology, but I, we we shouldn't expect that governments are, are not going to jump in at some point. I think at some point there will be government change where you know you can only deploy authorized applications, those sort of things, and so hopefully the controls are smart. That might kill that problem by just not enabling illegal activities in the first place. Right. But then if you really want to do avoid AML controls, you know, you can already do it. You don't have to wait yeah. go to money roll. You know, and the trick then is how do you get money in and out of those systems? And a number of governments, for example, in Southeast Asia, have taken steps so that private currencies are not allowed to be traded. So you can't I say money roll on an exchange in a number of countries already. I think it's tough for regulators because they, their job was to regulate policies and processes and companies, right. and now they have to regulate software. And you know, I think it's going to take time for them to have the capabilities really needed to do it effectively. Yeah, it's a massive paradigm shift. So can but, I say a tattoo is like a PayPal wallet? Yeah, so in, in the sense that you know we want to be easy to use and, and of course widely adopted. <laughs> and, you, know, you, you mentioned hardware wallet, so let's take the... Uh, in comparison to a hardware wallet, how does it work? What's the difference? So imagine you have a hardware wallet, like your Trezor. The device itself, super nice, easy to use, connect to your computer, 
could be a bit easier, more user-friendly, but you know, for tech people, it's fine. The problem then is your seed, you know, this, those 12 words. The seed phrase that you used to recover your wallet if, right. the, if, if you cannot remember your password. Right. And in a sense, those words are your assets. Anyone who has knowledge of those words has your assets. That's a big pain. You know, what do you do then? Maybe you split it in three parts and you put it in different safes or you know, maybe you're going to send parts to your mom. It's very difficult for people to keep it securely, really. And the truth is most probably don't. So why do we need those worlds? So what those worlds represent is just a, an easy way to read what's called a private key that you mentioned earlier, right? Like the, the key mm-hmm. that unlocks your assets. There's been breakthroughs in, in mathematics recently to say, okay, how about I don't have any key? Like, is there a way for me to make and sign a transaction without that private key existing anywhere? It's a bit difficult to wrap our head around it, right? Um, but it's been formally proven, been brilliant people working on this. There's a few companies that have been doing it for some years now. The concept is to say, okay, I'm going to have different parts of the keys. And those keys should be combined to make a transaction. So for example, maybe you're going to say, okay, for everyday transactions of less than one ether, I'm going to use my phone. That's fine for me. Just one person is going to approve. But then when I want to transfer more than an ether, I'm going to need my husband to go and approve it also. Or I'm going to need my wife to go and approve it you know, because I want to double check and it would be good that her phones double check the transaction. Maybe she's going to request it. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, um, and then you can say, uh, if I lose the device, maybe I have another process and I have another set of people that need to go and approve things. So you can have a bit more flexibility around how you want transactions to be signed and and you can have a concept where the private key is kind of virtual. It only is used to sign things and the signatures are valid, of course, but there's never any computer, any one computer that has a private key. And this is something called MPC, multi-party computation. It's coming mostly from Israel. Let's say all the research, all the, all the mathematics were mostly developed there. And then there's a few companies that, uh, like us, you know, then are using it for digital assets to basically enable recovery scenarios of private keys. So you don't have a private key. Instead, it's split into different people, and those people can change. You know, if you lose your phone, that's fine. We have a process for that. And you, know, you can authorize the replacement of the device, which means that you don't have to worry about those 12 words, your seed phrase anymore. You can just say, I have this phone and another one, and maybe my backup laptop uh, that I never use, just in case I lose my phone. And so, you know, again, this is coming from Vitalik also has claimed that, you know, we need to have social recovery wallets coming very, very soon. Yeah. And this concept of social recovery, I think, is going to facilitate adoption. And our view is that the participants of this uh, social recovery mechanism in a B2B context, then, you know, they can be also regulated entities. So if you're a business, maybe you don't want it to be the phone of your mom or your wife but maybe you want it to be a trusted company that is licensed, regulated, like that too. I see, yeah. I see. So when we're talking about custody from a Tado perspective, it's the concept of using the social recovery mechanism to sign and receive transaction. And today, most of the transaction on crypto or uh, with crypto and blockchain technologies in general is usually related to holding and sending tokens, right? In the future, what does that entail, given that what we spoke about during the beginning of the podcast is that you envision the security properties of the blockchain will be used for any type of use cases, not only with DeFi or transactions. So how does this custody solution blend into the future of blockchain technology once it's adopted? I guess the analogy I'd like to take is if we look at and I hope it's not going to sound pretentious, but if we look at MS-DOS or Windows, what Windows does is it's a way to interact with programs that are developed by a third party that provides you know, certain key features, like there's a menu and you can have your settings and you can store your files and you, know, you can do certain things that's like the core function of a computer. But then if you want a PDF, you install Acrobat 
uh, if you want to do video editing, you install something else. And so it's kind of a base layer on which applications are built. And these base layers let you interact with programs. Our goal then is to build a set of tools and products that let people interact with those secure computers. So then the question is, what is the program that exists on the secure computer? In essence, the program today of secure computers is called ERC20. That's the main, the most widely used software. It has various flavors and you know variants. But basically, we have a standard. We call it ERC20. It's used to represent assets and move them. And as standards continue to be created, you know, maybe we'll have a standard for secure email. Maybe we'll have a standard for news publishing. Maybe we'll have a standard for social media. And we'll have all those layers and you know ways to connect to those applications. Then our goal at Atato is to, in some ways, be a driver also in certain standards and participating in creating them. And then, of course, supporting as many as we can so that using our OS, if you want, you have access to the wider number of standards possible. That's kind of where we want to be a bit different from some other custodians. A number of custodians, they are seeing themselves as a financial institution. Mm-hmm. They're going to do lending and they're going to do borrowing and they're going to do settlement. And, you know, they, they are financial service provider. That's not really the vision that we have. You know, if we want secure computers to succeed, they need a user interface, an operating system. That's what we're building. And today, using those computers, we use them for moving assets, moving tokens. So those are the features that we provide right now. Of course, we call it custody because, you know, it, it, it takes this call to really <laughs> get the, the full vision of what we want to do. But as more applications are used on secure computers, then our job would be to support all of them and to participate in building the, the core layer that can be reused uh, between different applications, for example, wallets and keys. So, yeah, that's kind of the long-term goal and why custody. Well, because the app today on secure computers is tokens, basically. When we look at the internet back in, you know, the 60s, the 70s, when the infrastructure was being built, the value wasn't really captured by the people who developed infrastructure, but rather the applications that are built on top, which are the Facebook and the Google of the world, which came uh, later, right, in the 90s or 2000s or whatsoever. For a blockchain today, it seems that we're super early in the journey of creating the infrastructure itself. And there are these applications that are coming up with ERC-20, the DeFi, and also uh, you're creating the OS for people to to transact uh, and interact with these program programmable tokens. Do you view that once the infrastructure keeps being developed, that sort of this application will be obsolete in the future? It's a, it's a very good point. And, um, you know, again, if we take analogies, we can look at companies like Cisco, you know, arguably the biggest builder of the internet, right? We can look at companies like Microsoft, arguably the biggest builder of personal computing. Initially, Cisco was selling boxes of hardware. Microsoft was selling boxes with CDs in it and very successfully so on. But that was the initial model, right? Uh, I'm going to sell and provide the core infrastructure components. And then they switched both Cisco and Microsoft to a kind of service model where instead of buying Windows, you rent it. Instead of buying Office, you have Office 365. Same for Cisco, you have those you know, software as a service, cloud services provided by them. And why did they do that switch? Well, first, you have to create a standard and to be viable in the business sense, you know, you need to tie it with some economic model. But then once you've created a standard, it, it doesn't belong to you anymore in a way. Once you've created the TCP IP standard, if you're Cisco and you know all the other protocols, or once you've created all the Windows OS concepts and standards, in a way they don't belong to you. Then going back to Atato, you know, we think that there are market opportunities where we can build those businesses in the, in, in the next few years, for example, regulated custody. And in the long term, it's more going to be a protocol, just like you have the makeup protocol for DAI, basically, and then you have other protocols for Compound and other DeFi startups. You know, we also have to do what we preach and also become a decentralized protocol so that our OS doesn't rely on Atato to continue to operate. So that if our company, for some reason, uh, ceases to exist, 
the functions provided the operating system and the wallet continues to exist. And then what is the value of the company then? If you are the leading developer and driver of the roadmap of a product that we hope will become widely used and power a number of applications, then you know that has value in itself, just like Red Hat, for example, is a valuable company that it is open source software. You know, it's just there, it's free, go and grab it. And just like Maker, you know, Maker itself is it's free and grab it. You can clone it, sure. Yeah, go ahead. But if you want to use the secure one, you're probably gonna stay on Maker. For us, also then on the roadmap is to become a decentralized organization and to operate in this way so that we have an open protocol. And then some say in the direction of this on the long term for all the token holders, including Atato and then of course our investors. In the traditional sense, the people, once they create the protocol, they no longer own it. But for blockchain protocol layers, once you create these protocol, it's become a community governed because in a way it's decentralized. But what's different is that now you have crypto tokens attached to these protocol. So the value will always be captured by the members who are using it and governing the protocol. Right, absolutely. And I think as as the number of applications of say computer grows, having a say in you know what sort of primitive an operating system provides is going to be very important. If you look back at the Netscape versus IE uh, stories of the 90s, you know, we've seen how valuable it is to kind of govern the applications that can go on your computer. I think this is where the value of a future token will lie. In a way, when you look at protocols, you need to look at the community behind it that is going to secure and develop the protocol in the future. Absolutely. I think this is why we see Ethereum being so successful, Maker, a number of companies in Thailand also like Alpha or Ben you know, being successful because they've created and attracted this community of like-minded people uh, who all want to have a say in the governance of the product. That's, uh, that's our goal. This is also why, you know, on the community side, we've been quite active in uh, in Thailand and uh, in the border region for a number of years. Last year, organized, for example, Ethereum Bangkok with a thousand people joining us. So, yeah, that's an important part of our strategy also, for sure. And uh, we're continuing to run the, the meetups, the Ethereum Bangkok meetup, uh, Blockchain Thailand meetup online. Hopefully, uh, we can start to meet up again face-to-face soon. Yeah, building a community, uh, sharing the vision is extremely important, for sure. I think this is where in a way, the value of those new kind of companies that we call now lies, yeah. Oh, great. Thank you so much, Guillaume. Guillaume, that was really super. Thank you, everyone, you know, for joining to the podcast. And thank you, Michael and Nat, for having me. It's really great uh, to have a chance to share a bit more about what we're building. And a quick shout out then to all the team at Atato doing amazing work uh, and allowing me to be there to, to share the vision with you.